0: Well, good morning. We are glad that you're here with us this morning as we, we gather together to, to worship God together. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the Cedar Patriot here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. We are glad that you are here with us this morning. If you are new or visiting, and there's anything you'd like to let the church know about yourself, there's a connect card on the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out with any information you want us to know, and you can put those in the, the wooden boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those wooden boxes are also where tithes and offerings can be placed. So this is like, it feels like the week that, like, winter finally really showed up, right? And it seems, for, in our case, that it brought with it some technical difficulties, right? And so... Couple things you'll notice that our projector over here is is out, right? and we, we had a bulb and it was the wrong bulb, and, just, and then you so kind of all kinds of headaches there. You also notice your your bulletin is in black and white this week because our printer went down, and oh, no. the part that was supposed to be delivered was delayed by FedEx wasn't delivering during the snowstorm or whatever else, and so. Thankfully, Lori graciously printed these from home instead of from our work computer. we're thankful for that. We can do that at least and have this for you. That also means that the tech guys in the back don't have my manuscript printed, and so they're going to kind of guess when slides are going to jump. So, you can bear with us <laughs> there. And so, so, happy winter to everyone. So just to kind of give you a heads up for the the schedule this morning, so we're gathering here now, we'll wrap up in here around 10.15, kind of invite you after the service to come downstairs and have coffee and snacks with us, and then at 10.30, Sunday School, Children's Sunday School downstairs will begin, and also a, uh, a class we're starting this week called Habits of the Household will also begin this week, right? We're going to start that promptly at ten thirty. I know we like to hang around and talk and whatever downstairs for a while, but we're going to start that promptly at ten thirty to be able to get through the content So we'll let the class focused on kind of parents or anyone who spends a lot of time with with children, I'm just kind of talking about ways that we can build habits that point us to Jesus. And so we invite you to come and be a part of that ten thirty in the morning. That'll be in the library, and then at ten forty five, Eric will lead a. Kind of Q&A discussion of the sermon here in the sanctuary um, as well. Right? So we invite you to come be a part of any one of those things that take place. Right? The past week was, was our second week going through our fighter versus scripture memory for the year. So those of you here doing that, hope you had a good week memorizing. It's a longer verse or verses this week, so hopefully you were able to get those. I would recite it for you, but like we practice singing it all week and listen to the song, and like I can't say it now without singing it, and you don't want to hear me sing it, and so I'm I have it memorized, but I'm not going to sing it for you. All right? all right. but next week verse give you a little reprieve. It's a shorter one, John 14:6. Right? So if you've been waiting for a good week to start, and you're like, want a freebie, like probably half of you already know this verse as it is. It is I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. So we would invite you and encourage you to memorize that verse this week. So if you notice the last couple of weeks, we started a new, a new format to our worship where I'm getting up first. And one of the goals in that is to is kind of set the tone and give you a chance to really focus your heart and your minds on God. And one of the ways we've been doing that if by kind of starting the service, following up with with a moment of silence. And so I would invite you now into a moment of silence to reflect and think on all that God has done for you to prepare your heart for worship.
1: By singing and we're also we're going to start by reading a passage of scripture that will be a call to worship so if you would stand through this next section and those of you that are on the right if you can't see the words you can move this would be a great time to do it or you can uh, just listen so let's read responsively because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed for his compassions never fail and if you would read next
2: They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness.
1: I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him.
2: The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord.
1: So let's sing those sentiments together.
3: be
0: Continue in worship, but you join me in a time of prayer Father, we are, are so thankful for the way that you have loved us we just sang is we will hear from your word this morning the, the deep love that you loved us be defied our comprehension, defies our understanding when there is nothing lovable in us when we didn't deserve it anyway you loved us and you showed that love by by sending Jesus to come and live among us to suffer all that comes with living in a Broken world, and to die on our behalf on the cross. But Father, we rejoice and we thank you that you loved us enough that you would send your Son to die for us. Father, I pray that all that take place here this morning, we as we sing, as we fellowship together as we hear from you and from your word that it would all be done as a response to the way that you have loved us, that our deepest desire would be to honor you and glorify you and thank you for all the good things you've given us. the same time, God, we acknowledge that this world is broken. There are hard things happening in many of our lives. We pray, God, that you would be at work in the hearts and minds of those who are hurting, those who are broken, to give them a the deep, abiding sense of Your love and Your care for them. And for those who are struggling with a variety of things, God, that You would you'd be at work to, to transform hearts into the image of Jesus, that You would make us look more like your son. Father, for those who are hurting or who are sick or who are struggling with some other illness or disease, pray that you would bring healing where it is needed. You bring patient endurance where it is needed. That you would help each of us to rejoice even in the midst of suffering and pain. And Father, we, we pray for Pastor Ian and the youth who are down in Green Bay at the district conference but that you would be at work in that time to fill the students who are there with a, a deep and passionate love for Jesus, that you would build relationship between leaders and students, that you would give them safe travels back. That you would be at work and in mighty ways, there as well. Father, we pray that we continue to sing now. That the words that leave our mouth would not be just because there's words on a screen to sing along to, but they be a genuine overflow of our heart. And we would desire to see you honored and glorified and praised through our singing. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: So if you would stand together, we'll sing some more. We will offer our gratitude and honor to our Lord.
4: morning. This is a reading in a letter of Paul to the Galatians. Freedom in Christ. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. But we, who live by the Spirit, eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness of God as he promised us. For when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, there is no benefit in being circumcised or uncircumcised. What is important is faith, expressing itself in love. You were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? It is certainly not God, for he is the one who called you to freedom."
2: This false teaching is uh, like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. I am trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who has been confusing you. Dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you must be circumcised, as some say I do, why am I still being persecuted? If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. I just wish that those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another.
0: kids in 4k through second grade have the option of going downstairs for for children's church miss them now then the uh, in the 1993 Film Groundhog Day, the, the main character, Phil Connor, played by Bill Murray, he finds himself in this time loop. Right? He's reliving the same day, February 2nd, Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. And when Connor first discovers that he's in, in this time loop, he, he indulges that by kind of doing all kinds of, of reckless and self indulgent behavior. He realizes he can do whatever he wants because there's no consequences for his actions, because the same day just starts again the next day, no matter what he does. But eventually Connor kinda of finds that that lifestyle of self-indulgent behavior increasingly hollow. And so instead he begins to use the repeating days to improve himself and and learn new skills. And because this is Hollywood, to to live over, win over a love interest. So instead of using his his freedom for for immoral and self-indulgent delights, he he begins to use his freedom that comes with living in the time loop for for good. In other words, as we just heard read from Paul, he doesn't use his freedom to satisfy his sinful nature. He uses it to love others. A lot of superhero stories are, are built on the same theme. Right? They ask the question, like, how do you act when, you are, when you're truly free? Right? Bruce Wayne can act however he wants when he's Batman without any consequences for Bruce Wayne, because right? no one knows who he is. Right? Same thing for Clark Kent as Superman, or, or Peter Parker as Spider-Man. Right? All these characters have a decision to make. That they're free to act however they want. No one's going to know who they are. There's going to be no consequences for their actions. So are they going to use that freedom to indulge sinful desires? Are they going to use that freedom to love and serve others? And then what we just heard from the book of Galatians chapter 5, Paul tells us that the same choice confronts each and every one of us. What Paul is saying in the passage, we just heard that when we trust in Jesus, we, we receive his righteousness. Therefore, in a sense, we are free. We no longer have to perform to, to earn God's favor and earn God's approval. We've been set free by Jesus. And the question then that we all must answer is, how are we going to use that freedom? Are we going to use that freedom to indulge our sinful natures? Or are we going to use that freedom to serve and love others? And what I hope we see through the passage this morning is that when we truly understand the freedom that Jesus offers us, we'll use our freedom to love others and not to gratify our, our sinful desires. Or to put it another way, righteousness received by faith frees us to genuinely love others. The end goal of of the whole Christian life is to glorify God by by loving Him and by loving others. And verse 14 of our passage this morning drives that point home. Paul said, for the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible calls us over and over and over again to live lives of radical love for one another. If we're going to do that, if we're going to love one another, I think we need to wrap our heads around two really important, really big ideas. I had the outline up here, the full outline for the sermon. Right, and so there's these two big ideas that lead to genuine love. The first big idea is imputed righteousness. And the second big idea is true freedom. We have to understand both of those things before we get to genuine love. Only when we wrap our heads around and really embrace what these two things mean will we live lives marked by genuine love. And so we want going to just look at each of these two ideas first, starting with imputed righteousness. Now both of these things are kind of a, a corrective against the two ways that the Galatians, and all of us really, are, are tempted to live. Like on the one hand in Galatians, Paul is dealing with, with people who are legalistic. They're trying to to find favor with God by by doing certain things, acting certain ways. They're trying to make God happy with them. They're trying to earn their way into heaven by their own behavior. On the other hand, Paul is talking to some people in Galatians who who see Jesus and the forgiveness that he offered as as an invitation to live self-centered lives where they can use their freedom to, in Paul's words, satisfy their sinful nature. <clears throat> they see Jesus as a, a get-out-of-hell-free card and nothing else. And if we, if we think of those two things, the kind of two ends of the spectrum, right? we have legalism on one end, and we have self-indulgent, self-centered behavior on the other end, like we're invited in the passage by Paul to see a middle way, a better way, a third way, and that's the way of, of Jesus, a way marked by, by true freedom and genuine love. Oh, but I said, if we're gonna get there we need to wrap our minds around these two big ideas starting with imputed righteousness And that word imputed simply means like given right? So imputed righteousness is a, a righteousness that is given to us not our own righteousness But a righteousness that's been given imputed to us And here's why imputed righteousness matters If we want to be right with God if we want to be A child of God. If we want to enter God's kingdom, if we want eternal life, we need God to declare us righteous. Paul says in another of his letters, "Don't you realize that those who do wrong, that is, those who aren't righteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God?" I don't know about you, but I've done wrong. That seems troubling. None of us are righteous. We all do wrong. We all sin. Like Paul says in Romans, there is no one righteous, not even one. He also says in that same book, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? None of us lived up to God's standard of perfect, perfect moral behavior. None of us, through our own works, will meet God's standard of righteousness. That's why Paul is telling the Galatians here that what we just heard right? in verses two through four. Paul says this: Listen, I Paul tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision, and right? circumcision here you're kind of staying here for all works of the law. If you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again: If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourself right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. Trying to keep, make yourself right with God by legalistic law-keeping and rule-keeping is a futile effort will never work. We need a righteousness that's not our own. Because none of us is righteous enough on our own to meet God's standard. And so we need somebody else. We need imputed righteousness. That's why Jesus' life and death and resurrection are such a big deal. Again, in verse 4, Paul had said, if you are trying to make yourself right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have Fallen away from God's grace. But then in verse 5, he says this. But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. Paul is not depending on his own righteousness to make him right with God. He is depending on a righteousness that he knows he receives by faith. Paul says the same thing in a little more detail in Philippians 3, verse 9. He says, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. He explains how this all works in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived a sinless life. He, He didn't deserve to die, but he went to the cross and he died in our place. He became sin for us. And in exchange, he offered us his righteous life. Through faith in Jesus, Jesus takes our sin from us, and He gives us His righteousness. We, we become the righteousness of God when we trust in Jesus. When we have faith in Christ, he, he takes our sins, no matter how many they are, no matter how bad our sins may seem, He takes them from us, and He gives us His perfect righteousness in exchange. The bad news is that that none of us is a good enough person on our own to be right with God. But the infinitely better news is that no matter how sinful you think you are, you can be made right with God by receiving the perfect righteousness of Christ. If you're here this morning and you've been been trying to earn God's favor through your good works, you should have been trying to live good enough I just urge you and convert urge you to stop trusting in your own work and put your faith in Jesus. Or if you're here and you, you feel a burden because you, you believe your sins are too egregious, too vile, there's no way you could be forgiven. I want you to know. I want you to hear that there is nothing you have done that puts you beyond the reach of God's grace for you in Jesus. No matter what sins you've committed, Jesus is willing and waiting to take your sins upon himself and give you his righteousness in return. That's you today. I urge you to, to trust in him. Trust that Jesus can take your sins. If you have questions about what that looks like, what that means, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about that. I urge you to trust Jesus by faith that you might become the righteousness of God. So this idea of imputed righteousness is Paul's rejection of, of the legalists in the church in Galatia. He's rejecting those in the church in Galatia who say, oh, you have to be circumcised, or you have to obey the Old Testament food laws, or you have to celebrate the Old Testament festivals in addition to trusting Jesus. To them, Paul says, no, the only thing that matters is what Jesus did. Your obedience, your circumcision, your food law-keeping can't make you right with God. Only what Jesus did matters. The problem with that thinking, that for some people, they hear that at the invitation. They hear, well, if Jesus died for my sins, if Jesus already took my sins upon himself then I can sin all I want. I can do whatever makes me feel good because it's already been paid for by Jesus. I am, in other words, free to do whatever I want, whenever I want. This is at the other end of the spectrum from, from those who demand legalistic rule following. They think, Jesus, they think Jesus has set me free. My sins are forgiven, so now I can do whatever, Whenever. And at first, it kind of seems like verse 1 supports that idea. In verse 1, Paul says, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. You're free, just stay free. And oftentimes we think freedom is doing whatever I want, whenever I want. But if we look more closely, especially in a more word-for-word translation like the ESV, we notice a few things about this verse. From the ESV, Paul writes, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. That, that phrase, like, for freedom, Christ has set us free, the, is an interesting phrase. Because the implication behind that phrase is that there are ways that you can live after you've been set free by Jesus that are not true freedom. There are ways to live, even after Christ has set you free, that are not for freedom. It's not true freedom. And one of those ways is certainly the legalism we've already talked about. But if you look at the end of verse 1, Paul says, Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And Paul's point there in saying again is that before they knew Christ... Most of these Galatians were living a life of self-indulgent, self-centered paganism. And he's saying, like, before, that, before you knew Jesus, that was a way of slavery too. Even that, that way of self-centered, self-indulgent paganism is, is also slavery. Paul's saying both legalism and self-centered, satisfying of sinful desires are actually just different types of, of slavery. Freely satisfying sinful sinful desire may seem like freedom, but it isn't. It's a counterfeit freedom. It's it's not true freedom. Paul expands on this in, in verse 13. He says, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. If you're using the freedom you've received by God's grace through Christ's forgiveness to to satisfy sinful desires, it's not true freedom. And Jesus wants us to be be truly free. I'm, I'm currently reading the book, Remaking the World. And in this book, the author, Andrew Wilson, He makes the point that, today, there are six countries in the entire world that do not claim to be democracies. Six countries in the whole world. Those countries are Qatar, Oman, the United, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Brunei, and Vatican City. Every other country in the whole world claims to be a democracy. Like Even some of the world's least free, most authoritarian countries claim to be republics and democracies and have freedom. North Korea's official name is the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea. And that sounds great. It sounds like a free place to live. Because we know that's not true. One of the hallmarks of of democracy is a freedom of the people whose ability to freely choose their own representatives. Democracy and freedom go hand in hand. And yet many people who live in countries that claim to be democracies are decidedly not free. They They experience a kind of counterfeit democracy, a kind of counterfeit freedom. That's the kind of Freedom we settle for when we use our freedom to satisfy our sinful nature. We think that indulging our sinful cravings, whatever they may be, is an expression of freedom. But really, indulging our sinful cravings is just another form of slavery that masquerades as freedom. Sinful indulgence feels good in the moment. But it leaves the feeling empty and hollow in the end. Probably all of us have had some kind of experience of this. Like at some point in your life, you've likely kind of laid aside all self-control and just indulged in selfish desires. Like where you just kind of indulged in whatever craving or desire, temptation, you were feeling that you know you shouldn't have indulged in, yet you did it anyway. You've had that time. And after the fact, you probably felt awful. Felt empty. You felt hollow. And afterwards, and you feel that hollowness and emptiness and guilt. You you promise yourself, "I'll never do that again." But then, sometime later, the temptation comes back, and this time the temptation is even stronger than before, and you indulge again. And after a few cycles of this, you're entirely powerless, it seems, to resist the temptation. Even though you know that giving in to the temptation only leaves you feeling hollow and empty. And what looks like freedom, indulging in this behavior, has now become a trap, a snare. The reason behind this is because we're actually really bad at knowing what will make us happy. Trevin Wax, in his book, Rethinking Yourself, puts it this way. That people often think that looking into your heart to figure out your desires is the easy part. And that it is the fulfilling of your deepest desires that takes so much energy. But that simply is not the case. The truth is, you don't know what will make you happy. You use our freedom to indulge our sinful nature, thinking that will make us happy only to find that it doesn't, because we're really bad at knowing what will actually leave us feeling satisfied. It's become kind of cliche to say that we all have a God-sized hole in our hearts. And yet there's a lot of truth in that cliche statement. We all have this hole we're trying to fill, and we often try to use sinful indulgence to fill that hole, but it never works. We find it utterly unsatisfying. The a hole only God can fill. And so what we need is not counterfeit freedom of sinful indulgence. We need the true freedom that, that Jesus offered us. And the question then becomes, Like, what does this true freedom look like? If I want to use my freedom to not satisfy my sinful desire, then how should I use my freedom? Paul tells us in verses 13 and 14. He says, Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said something very similar back in verse 6. That For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or uncircumcised. What is important? It's faith expressing itself in love. When we know that we've truly been set free because we've received the perfect righteousness of Jesus, then and only then can we truly love others with a genuine love, like Jesus. And neither the person who is legalistic in their slavery to the law, nor the person who is using their freedom to satisfy their sinful desires, neither one of them can truly, genuinely love others fully. The legalistic person can't genuinely love others because their motives are always selfish. Their motives are always to to make God happy with them, to get some reward from God. Their their motivation is not the love of the other person, it's what they're going to get from God for their moral action. Just imagine for a moment that, that one day, like I, I did some romantic gesture for my wife. Maybe I, I brought her flowers or whatever else. And the next day I did some other romantic gesture. Maybe I wrote her some sentimental love letter, and the next day I do another loving gesture, and the next day another one, and the next day another one, and on and on for a month straight. Like likely, at the end of this month, she would feel loved. But then imagine she finds out I did all these things because I was paid to participate in a like social science experiment (laughs) And the researchers behind the experiment had told me what romantic gesture to do each day They provided the flowers. They'd given me the script to write on the love note. They've they did everything for me And all I did was follow the script that suddenly, that those, those romantic gestures don't look like genuine love. And the same thing is true for apparent acts of love that we do for others when our motivation is not actually love for that person, but an effort to earn some favor from God. Acts that look loving, but are done for selfish reasons are not genuine love, until the person who is doing loving acts, but are doing them legalistically to earn God's favor are not acting in genuine love. Likewise on the other end of the spectrum, the person who is, is using their freedom to satisfy their, their sinful desires will never genuinely love, because love is, is inherently definitionally self-sacrificial. And self-sacrifice is nonsensical to the person who is selfishly living for themselves. And again, they may do acts that, from the outside, look loving. But the motivation behind those acts is ultimately that they think they're going to get something of equal or greater value in return. The Latin phrase, quid pro quo, means... Something for something, and it's used to describe these like mutually beneficial agreements and I think of that one like sometimes like two sport teams will make a trade and often it's one team that is young and rebuilding and not very good trading to a team that is good and on the cusp of winning a championship and so the young rebuilding team will trade an established star player to the other team for young prospects who, in the future, may be good, but aren't that good right now. And sometimes, when those two teams make a trade, it turns out to be a win-win. So, if, if the good player who traded to the championship-caliber team carries that team to a championship, and the young players who were traded to the rebuilding team develop into their other potential and eventually make that team good, like it's a win-win for both teams. But the two teams, even though they both benefited, didn't make that trade because they love each other. They made that trade because they saw something they wanted, and they knew they would have to give something up to get what they wanted in return. That's how the self-centered, self-indulgent person thinks about acts that look loving. They may do things that look loving, But they aren't genuine love. They're they're done in hopes of of getting something of equal or greater value in return. So neither the legalistic nor the self-indulgent person will ever genuinely love. And to be clear, these are are extreme examples. No one's purely motivated by legalism, and no one's purely motivated by self-indulgence. God and His grace has, has given all of us the ability to genuinely love others at, at times. But nevertheless, legalism and, and self-centeredness both make it difficult to genuinely love others. But when we walk this middle way, the way of Jesus, when we experience the genuine love that, that Jesus has for us, when we know that Jesus came and he died for us, when we know that we don't have to love others to earn God's favor, when we know that Jesus offered us something better than any of the fleeting pleasures of sin, when we believe that, then we're free to <laughs> genuinely love others. In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. What way is that, you may ask? It goes on to say in verse 13, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Though I said earlier that love is inherently, definitionally self-sacrificial. That's where I get that from. That there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. When Vanessa and I were, were dating, like I was wrestling with the question of, like, like, when do I say and mean, I love you? And for me, those verses from John 15 kind of became the barometer in my mind for when I would say those words. I decided I wasn't going to say I love you until I knew that I would die for her. That I'd rather me die in her place. That's what love is. And I'm not saying that needs to be everyone's barometer, everyone's filter for when they say those words. But I do think we've been fed lots of sentimental versions of what love is. And they mostly revolve around our emotional state. And I think at the very least, like our working kind of mental definition of love must contain a desire for the other person's well-being over our own. When we say we love someone else, whether it's a romantic love or a, a brotherly, sisterly, friend love, we're expressing a desire for the other person's well being above and beyond our own. That's what Jesus modeled for us ultimately in dying for us. That's the way Paul called us to treat. One another. Again in verse 6 he had said, what mattered is faith expressing itself in love. Our lives should be marked constantly by by self-sacrificial love for others. And yet frequently, our lives look like what Paul describes in verse 15. In verse 15 he says this, but if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Like we're, we're so prone to doing that. Like, oh, I can't believe that person dresses like that. Bite. I can't believe that person thinks we should sing hymns in church instead of modern songs. Bite. I can't believe that person doesn't serve the church the same way I do. Bite. Can't believe that person disagrees with me on some obscure, minor point of theology. Bite. Can't believe that person thinks we should spend the church's money that way. Bite. Can't believe that person watches that TV show. Bite. I can't believe that no one cared as much about X or Y or Z as much as I do. Like, why am I the only one who sees this? Bite. I can't believe that person holds that political view. Bite. And that person, well, that person is so messed up. Like They're not even worthy to be called a Christian. Devour. Church, would we not be people who are always biting and devouring one another? Would we be people who genuinely love one another? Not just the people who do things we like. Not just the people who see things the same way we see them. Would we love like Jesus? Would we show deep, deep grace for one another? Would we live out this command to love others as ourselves? Like when I think about how I love myself, like I don't, I don't know about you, but when I most need to know I'm loved, is not when I'm at my best. I most need to know I'm loved when I'm at my worst. And yet we're quick to love others when they're at their best and awfully slow to love others when they're at their worst. Would we love like Jesus? Would we love people even at their worst? Knowing that that Jesus came to love us when there was nothing lovable in us. And that he continues to love us day after day after day Even when we fall short day after day after day, would our faith in Jesus, our faith in Jesus, who loved us enough to die for our sins, would our faith express itself in love for others? Would we be people who don't bite and devour and destroy, but people who genuinely love? And as we said, like, there's no greater expression of love than that Jesus came and he died for us on the cross. In so just a minute, we're going to take communion together. Communion is a, a reminder of all that Jesus has done for us. But before we do that, we're going to watch a short video clip that just reminds us and displays for us the love and grace that Jesus has for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for how you've loved us in Jesus when you've loved us at our worst. That you loved us in the most visible, the most powerful way possible by dying for us. By taking our sins upon Yourself, giving us Your righteousness. Even though we didn't deserve it. The Father, as we remember how You loved us in Jesus, would we love others that same way? Would we be people who live out the command to love one another as ourselves?
1: We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From the chosen, let me just set the stage for it. There's a little backstory that we need to know. Uh, first of all, I want to make clear that this is fictionalized backstory. It's not in the Bible, but I think the writers put it in The show specifically to personify this concept of grace that Tim has been talking about. Because that's a key theme in all of the Bible, and especially in the New Testament. And as you'll see, this is a clip that we've seen before, but it's been a while. It's extremely powerful. As you remember from the clip that I showed uh, probably a couple years ago about Mary Magdalene, Jesus sought her out in a gambling den. He called her called her to himself by name and healed her from the demons that were tormenting her so she became one of the tra- one of those traveling with Jesus and his growing band of disciples and just prior to the scene that we're going to watch now she has a relapse into her former life specifically gambling and excessive alcohol so Jesus sends Peter and Matthew to find her and bring her back and the clip opens when Jesus mother accompanies Mary Magdalene to face the music with Jesus. And the first words you hear Jesus say stem from the fact that he has just learned that his cousin, John the Baptizer, has been arrested by Herod and put in a maximum security prison. But so the reason we're showing this, I want you to put yourselves in Mary's shoes and visually experience the grace that Jesus is extending to you that we're going to commemorate as we take communion. So let's watch now.
3: It's not you. There's quite a lot going on right now. (laughs) So it's good to have you back. I don't know what to say. I don't require much. I'm. I'm so ashamed. You redeemed me, and I just threw it all away. Well, that's not much of a redemption if it can be lost in a day, is it? Yeah. I owe you everything, but I just don't think I can do it. Do what? live up to it repay you how could I leave how could I go back to the place I was and I didn't even I didn't even come back on my own they had to come get me (sighs) I just can't live up to it well that's true (laughs) but you don't have to I just want your heart. A Father just wants your heart. Give us that, which you already have. And the rest will come in time. Did you really think that you'd never struggle or sin again? I know how painful that moment was for you. I shouldn't. Someday. But not here. I'm just so sorry. Look up. (laughs) I
1: can't. You can look at me.
0: Of how Jesus loved Mary Magdalene at her lowest point, and how He loves each of us even in our lowest moments. And yet, we're so quick to forget that love He has for us. And so, in taking communion, we we remind ourselves not just in word, but in tangible, physical ways of of the love that that Jesus had for us. That we eat the bread which represents his broken body that hung on the cross and and drink the juice that represents his blood that was spilled for us. We remember that he loved us. He died for us. Not because of what we might offer him. Not because of our potential. Because the God who loves us, even at our lowest, even when we don't deserve it. So we invite all who, who trust in Jesus to come and take communion. Here's how we do communion here. We'd invite you in just a moment to, to come up the side aisles here, to come up to either the station here or the station there. Take the cup, take the bread. If you prefer gluten-free elements, throw in the wicker basket. And return to your seats, either by the middle aisle or the far outside aisle. And when everyone has grabbed, taken the elements, we'll partake together. If you have a hard time getting around, and would rather have someone brought, the element brought to you, you can raise your hand, and I will I will bring you the elements. I invite you to come before we do that. will pray once again. Father, thank you for this Reminder of all that you've done for us in Jesus. And would it encourage us and equip us and fuel us to show the same kind of love to others? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're ready, you come, take the element, return to your seats, and we'll partake together in a few moments. Mm-hmm. and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Partake. We, we take communion as a way to remember how Jesus loved us and as an encouragement to then go and love others in the same way. One of the ways we do that at the church is, in addition to living it out in our day-to-day lives, is taking a, a benevolence offering on the Sundays that we do communion together. So as you leave today, at the door there will be someone holding a tray. Of that tray for the benevolent Offering specifically, it's an offering that we use to meet needs of people in our church and community who are struggling, going through a hard time for whatever reason. And so, if you want to contribute and display the love of God that way, We invite you to place that in the tray. Again, regular tithes and can go in the wooden boxes that are on the back wall. I just pray and encourage you as you go, go Loving others the way Jesus first loved us. You are dismissed.